morning, church. Happy New Year as well. Um, I should also send my um, Epiphany greetings. Uh, I believe yesterday was the first day of Epiphany. Uh, the day in the church calendar where we commemorate Jesus Christ is revealed as the Son of God. Um, so happy Epiphany also. It's a joy to be with you. It's always a joy to be back in London. Um, I always miss it when I'm in the States. So it's good to be with you, especially in this series on Ephesians and our growth in Christ. I'm going to be reading from chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, uh, to start our time. So let us open to Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 to 6, I believe will be up on the screen as well. And it reads, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Before I pray, I'm just going to highlight uh, verse 3 is going to be sort of the controlling verse of our time together in the sermon. Uh, verse 3 again, just to read it one more time. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, this opening uh, verse, verses 1 to 6, is really the beginning of the second half of the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians 1 to 3 is seen as the first part, traditionally in Ephesians, and then 4 to 6 as the second part. You could understand chapters 1 to 3 as really focusing on orthodoxy, focusing on right doctrine, right belief, and then chapters 4 to 6 as focusing on orthopraxy, or um, right living, we might be tempted in thinking about that to say that then uh, chapters 1 to 3 is really about what God does, right? And then chapter 4 to 6 is about what then we do, what our lifestyle should be in light of the gospel. What really, I think it would be more accurate to understand um, chapters 1 to 3 is what God has done for us, and then chapters 4 to 6 is what God is doing through us. What God is doing through us. And when Paul begins this section, what God is doing through us in light of what God has done for us, where does Paul start? Verses 1 to 6, he starts with Christian unity. Now, it isn't hard to see the relevance of this topic. It's probably a truism to say that we live in a divided age. And so we can immediately see why the topic of unity would be important. However, I, I do think it probably doesn't strike us as monumental to our lives. When we think about that thing that we need to consider to reflect on to really change our lives, Christian unity is probably not in the top five. But what if I ask you this? Have you ever wondered what sort of person you were meant to be? Do you wonder if there's some great purpose to your life if only you could find out what it is? Do you ever feel like you were made for something special? Do you ever yearn to find your calling in life? In verse 1, Paul urges us to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. He begins by saying that you have a calling. 
You're being drawn, you're being summoned into something. And to really explore that calling, he says, we need to talk about Christian unity. To discover your own calling, to know what life you have been called to live, requires us to consider the topic of Christian unity. In other words, on the one hand, when we experience the personal transformation that comes from the gospel, we are drawn into this grand vision of a united body. Now, that sort of connection between our personal transformation and Christian unity rubs again against our culture somewhat because we do think of personal transformation as inherently individual. We have all the YouTube channels, we have the podcast, the diary of a CEO that can work with us right, to transform us. We don't think of, as Paul is going to argue, personal transformation is inherently communal. But Paul says, if you want to consider your calling, if you want to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, we need to talk about Christian unity. To live into your calling, then, is a summons to embrace the unity of the church. And so the three um, topics I want us to, to cover as we think about Christian unity is, first of all, what is Christian unity? What is the nature of Christian unity? How do we maintain it? What is the sustenance of Christian unity? And then why bother with it at all? What is the purpose of Christian unity? What is Christian unity? How do we maintain it? And why do we bother with it at all? So first of all, what is Christian unity? Now I want to start by noting um, in the book of Ephesians, the word unity doesn't actually appear first in Ephesians chapter 4. And the first reading we have of unity is in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 9 to 10, it reads, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Unity, at its very heart, in the Christian story, is the story of redemption. When Paul wants to talk about the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, he says that the redemptive work of Jesus Christ is about to bring all things into unity under Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. The story of creation right, is about a world that is made in union with God, that all things are in their right place. The story of the fall when Adam and Eve sin and are taken out of the Garden of Eden, is a story of disunity, right? the breaking of that union. Adam turns against Eve, and Eve points to the serpent. Even person, person, turn against each other. In chapter 4 of Genesis, Abel and Cain, you see disunity within siblings when Cain kills his brother. Even in the story of Exodus, when Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, Aaron and Miriam, uh, his siblings, turn against him in jealousy. The story of disunity then marks the human story, where we turn against each other. And redemption then, in light of this disunity that marks our fallen world, is about a reuniting of all things, under Christ and in Christ. Again, Paul emphasizes this a lot, not just in Ephesians chapter 1, but also in Colossians 1.20. Colossians 1.20, he writes, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, speaking of Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
God's ultimate purpose for the world is to unite all things under Christ. The church then is a preview of this cosmic reality. Christian unity, you could say, is a foreshadow of what is to come for the entire world. Paul says in in chapter 1, the grand story of the end of time is the unity of all things. Then in chapter 4 he says, but God is starting with the church. What does this foreshadow consist of? Verse 3, Paul says, keep the unity of the Spirit through through the bond of peace. Christian unity then is the holding together of a fallen apart people by the by the power of a uniting and unifying God. Note that in, cha- in verse 3, it doesn't say create the unity. It says keep it. Right? The unity of the church is a supernatural work of the Spirit that we are called to keep, not create, and arguably not even one that we can destroy. What holds us together then, if you want to speak of Christian unity? Verses 4 to 6, right? There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Each of these could easily be their own sermon. Um, But just to focus on one as an example, when it says one baptism, what Paul is saying there, for example, is that when we consider the sacrament of the gospel, the sacrament of baptism, it is saying that we all enter the church through the same door. There is no VIP section of the church. We all enter through the same door. We all enter the church through the waters of baptism, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is then a sacrament of unity is what Paul is considering us to remember. It's a covenant with each other, a covenant with God, a covenant of grace that draws us out of ourselves into a God who loves us and a God who's brought us to one another. Now, this vision of Christian unity I think probably goes against what we might think of unity when we consider a topic of unity. Think back to the 2008 Beijing Olympics, and the 110-meter hurdles, the women's final. Lolo Jones is the favorite to win, US sprinter. The race begins, and as you can imagine, she takes the lead very early on. But at the ninth hurdle, the ninth hurdle, she clips the hurdle. She doesn't fall all the way down, but she goes from first place to seventh place in an instant. She was but a second and a half from a gold medal, and she ends in seventh place. And we can think of unity as that. As long as you clear each hurdle, everything's great. But the minute you clip a hurdle, everything is lost. To stretch the illustration a bit, you might even say, sometimes we think about unity as not even trying to attempt to clear the hurdle. I'm not even going to bother because I don't want to risk clipping this hurdle and breaking this unity. Or we might say, let's lower the bar. Why is the hurdle so high? Let's seek uniformity. Let's maximize compatibility. Lower the hurdle as low as we can. Therefore, we don't have to worry about clipping it. In other words, we might think of unity as a sort of absence of conflict. As long as we maintain the absence of conflict, we have unity. But the minute we enter conflict, we've broken unity. But I'll say that's not the vision of unity that Paul has. Unity in Paul's mind is not the absence of conflict. Unity is the glue that holds differences together in spite of conflict. It is sort of 
as the trees that share um, root systems in forests. When trees grow, uh, their roots go deep. But at some point, their roots start to interconnect. And they start to become one. So even as they compete for light, they share the same root system. When it rains, they are receiving the same nutrients and passing those nutrients to each other. So it's not that their conflict for light disappears, but they are held together underneath by something stronger than that conflict that is above. So in thinking about what Christian unity is, secondly, how do we maintain it? What is the sustenance of Christian unity? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2, Paul says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. He speaks of humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. He recognizes that Christian unity is maintained by dependence on grace, by a consideration of the needs of others, by a tolerance of the shortcomings of others, and quite literally, a bearing of one another in love. In other words, Christian unity is maintained by an entire life of focus on other people to step outside of yourself and to consider the needs of others. This is incredibly countercultural um, to our society. I remember a while ago reading an article um, in The Guardian that spoke about life in London, um, and it interviewed a retired banker who was living in, in, in the Barbican, and he was reflecting on his life, spending his working years in London, saying that, yeah, I remember when I was young, my 30s, 40s, 50s, I just was, you know, right in the heart of the city. I would get up, I would go to work, in the tube, go home. There was this energy, there was this productivity that was driving me. And he says that as he aged, and especially as he, as he retired and he became elderly, recognized there was a deep challenge of being elderly in the city. He said that the city could be characterized as a city of high productivity, easy mobility, and low maintenance. And as long as you can be highly productive, you're, you can easily get around, and you don't need to be maintained. Things will go well for you. But the minute you can't produce, the minute you're not easily movable, the minute you're too high of a requirement to maintain, you find yourself quickly pushed to the side. And he reflected on how he now finds himself being the one who's been pushed to the side as one who was once you know, walking with speed through the, through the tube. And that challenge of, right, of the elderly in London, I think, speaks to the ways um, that we can see a life that's inherently focused on ourselves. When someone becomes too much of a burden, we have this tension that says, I, I don't want to focus on this person. This has taken too much of my time, taken too much of my productivity. It is slowing me down. It is making me less productive. But that is exactly what a life focused on other people is. It will slow you down. It will make you less productive. But a life focused on other people is how Christian unity is maintained. Uh, one uh, Latin American theologian, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, says it like this. He says, contrary to the laws of physics, we can stand straight according to the gospel only when our center of gravity is outside of ourselves. We can stand straight according to the gospel only when our center of gravity is outside of ourselves. Verse 3, Paul continues speaking about the maintenance of uh, this unity. He says that it requires, right, the unity of the Spirit is maintained through the bond of peace. This is an active pursuit of peace within 
the community. This is not, by the way, some sort of religious avoidance. When we think about peace, we think about we want to keep things calm. Don't shake the waters. Don't mess things up. Don't be too loud of a voice. We want to avoid any sort of disruption. That's not the peace that Paul is speaking about. Paul is speaking about a peace that is the seeking or the flourishing of the other. An inherent concern and focus on the welfare of the other, the health, the wholeness of the other. When we are each concerned about the welfare of the other, we necessarily grow deeper in our unity as we maintain the bond of peace. Again, this is not about avoidance. Um, we might think and we want to keep peace by not disturbing things, by not causing trouble. But part of what it means to seek peace is to speak truth. Governments, we can stretch this really to so many different areas of life. Governments, democracies, social movements rise or fall on their internal systems of critique. We have Prime Minister's questions on Wednesdays, I was at 12 o'clock for like 30, 45 minutes, that the head of the government is grilled by other people. We have committees that analyze, we have inquiries that assess the performance of our leaders. We have internal systems of critique because we know we need those systems of critique in order to maintain the unity of the state. And the same is true of the church. The bond of peace is not avoidance. It actually requires speaking truth. In other words, I would say the church needs prophets to maintain the bond of peace. Uh, one pastor writes like this, speaking about the church and its need for prophets says that the church needs prophets who are troubled by the messiness of the church. The judgmental saints, they need gracious prophets to show them a better way. The divisive saints need unifying prophets to help them major in the majors and minor in the minors. The victims of injustice need compassionate prophets to love and support them, to speak up for them. The poor prophet, um, saints need open-handed prophets to lift them out of a desperate state. The drunken saints need sober-minded prophets with a vision for their sobriety. In other words, the church needs prophets. The bond of peace is maintained in part through the speaking of truth to one another. It is not the absence of conflict. It is not avoidance of any disruption. But it's to speak the truth in love so that we may be held together as one, maintaining our unity. Thirdly, why bother with this at all? So why bother with Christian unity? What is the purpose of Christian unity? I want to gently lift this point back to verse 1. Paul member says that uh, he urges us to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. He says that our personal transformation is bound up with Christian unity to the degree that we maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace with one another is the degree to which we can experience true personal transformation. If you want to live into your calling, if you want to live deeper into the life that you have been made to live, then you need to walk deeper in Christian unity. And despite our individualistic culture, we inherently understand this. We intuitively know that this is the case. I remember uh, four years ago when I was um, beginning to prepare to move to the United States to go to seminary, I started a campaign to raise funds. Um, and alongside that, I had a blog uh, that I was publishing, I think, every month. 
just expressing some of my thoughts and uh, desires as, as I was moving to seminary. And at the heart of it, all of the blog posts were pretty much the same thing. I can't wait to learn Greek. I can't wait to learn Hebrew. I'm excited to read books and be in the library all day. <laughs> but when I think back to the, my time in seminary, um, it's not the books that I think of. It's the people that I think of. Right? I did spend a lot of time in the library. But it wasn't the library that transformed me. It was the people that transformed me. In other words, the books did help me to learn, but it was the people who helped me to change. When you think back to previous seasons of your life, it's not the details of the activities you remember. It is the people you encountered and the ways in which they transformed you into the person that you are now. Think of this. Um, Rachel, my wife, and I uh, had a newborn, Eden Elizabeth. Um, and the birth of a child in those, especially those infancy stages, is, is you learn a lot about life through the birth of a child, especially just how dependent a child is on you. Um, when we took Eden home, you know, we were ex- excited, excited, tired. But day by day, we just would stare at her and we were enthralled by her. But I remember, um, I think maybe three months into it, waking up one morning and just looking to the side and seeing the baby was still there. And I thought, oh, this is her home. <laughs> you know, a part of me thought, the parents are going to come and pick her up now. And then I'm going to go back to living my life. And I was like, no, Israel uses the parent. It's you, bro. Like, this is it. She's here to stay. This is her house, too. She's de- completely dependent on you. There's no passing her off to someone else now. That dependency of a child's growth on a parent is the dependency of the Christian growth on the church. You need other people in your life to grow. And to the degree that you can depend on others in the grace of God is the degree to which you can experience the true personal transformation that you long for. So why bother with Christian unity? Because your life depends on it. Christian unity is part and parcel of what it means to experience true transformation. You cannot do this by yourself. Do you remember the poem by Maya Angelou? Alone, lying, thinking, last night, how to find my soul a home where water is not thirsty and bread loaf is not stone. I came up with one thing, and I don't believe I'm wrong, that nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Alone, all alone, nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. None of us can make it out here alone. Our growth, our maturity, our transformation, our lives that fully embrace the calling to which we have been called is dependent on each other. But to recognize that we need each other is not enough because we cannot do it alone. We are dependent on the grace of God to really experience that true transformation that comes through Christian unity. Jesus Christ, when he gives us this call, when he summons us out, sort of like the Lazarus experience of John 11, says, come out, be birthed into new life, and join my body. Jesus Christ does not stand afar and say, okay, now that you've come into this spiritual life, you all go and figure it out by yourselves. No, Jesus Christ draws close to us and sets the example and leads the way in what it means to embrace the other for the sake of their growth and transformation. 
Think of verse 2 and how Jesus Christ fulfills each and every one of those virtues that Paul speaks about. In humility, Jesus Christ humbles himself to the point of death on a cross that you may experience true and complete transformation. In gentleness, Jesus Christ says, Come to me, you who are heavy uh, burdened and laden. I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly of heart. He says in patience to, uh, to Thomas, when he doubts whether Jesus Christ has come back from the grave, see the marks on my hands. I'll be patient as I draw you closer to me. Jesus bears us quite literally on the cross when he carries our sins for us and dies for our sins. Jesus Christ brings us into unity, setting the example. And then he says, now that I've brought you into unity with myself, maintain the unity in the Spirit. The Spirit that I have given you is now entrusted to you for the sake of the others, that each one of you in this church, each one of you in reality would experience true personal transformation, to truly live into the calling to which you have been called. Our efforts to keep the unity of the Spirit and the transformation that it produces is a result of the work of Jesus Christ for us. Jesus Christ broke the bonds of division, that we could walk in the bonds of peace. Jesus' body was torn that we might be held together in one body. It was Jesus Christ who descended into the fires of hell that we all together could walk through the waters of baptism. And now he gives us his spirit to live in unity and to live lives worthy of our calling. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are acutely aware of our need for transformation. That, that question that haunts our hearts of what it means to fully live into all that we have been called to be depends on your spirit and it depends on others. We pray that we would embrace the unity of the church, the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And in doing so, we would have the joy of seeing each one of us transformed into all that we were made to be and that we ourselves would live fully into the grace that you've given us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.